Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always great to be with all of you. Hope you're having a, a great new year. And, you know, as the election year begins... A lot of exciting news happening on the election front, and it's only just beginning. It's only just getting started as Iowa caucuses are this week, and soon New Hampshire and other politics abound. And it's fascinating that recently, polling from um, national polling from AP and other sources found that about 4 in 10 U.S. adults named foreign policy topics in an open-ended question that asked people to share up to five issues for the government to work on in the next year. According to a December poll from the Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Research Affairs, for Public Affairs Research. And, you know, it's always interesting what makes the pendulum swing, but obviously when our strongest ally in the Middle East and in the world, Israel, is attacked heinously by barbarism. On October 7, people realized that the appeasement, the weakness of President Biden ushered in an era of Obama 3.0, a post-American era in which the vacuum, the vacuum expanded globally and that vacuum needed to be filled by evil, and it was filled by evil. And we need better leadership. We need renewed leadership. We need to renew America's promise. And Americans are worried. And yet at the same time, as we see inflationary economics, as we see a trillions and trillions added to our American budgetary deficit, more than ever, the American population does not have the tolerance to fund endless wars, let alone any wars, has no tolerance to fund those that um, do not see that we start at home first. And I can understand some of that sentiment, but that dichotomy, the dichotomy of no matter how stressed you are, you still make wise financial decisions. You still make budgetary decisions that are wise. So this is in no way to say that somehow Ukraine and Israel are equivalent. I, I, I detest the moral equivalency because obviously we've got a, a lifetime, multiple generations of a strong bond, strong alliance and loyalty to the state of Israel. While Ukraine just now has been fighting against Russia after it was invaded and we're still trying to understand exactly where this is headed The two are very different. The two cannot be compared. And we need to take each foreign policy challenge at times separately. But there's also a unifying axis. And don't forget the red-green axis. The axis of the far-left Marxist progressivists in alliance with the Islamists. The Chinas and Russias of the world in alliance with the Irans and Hamases of the world. 
And this is the threat, I think, that Americans see when they talk about a top five issue on the kitchen tables. Top five being the border, economics, and now foreign policy, and especially protecting our allies. And sometimes that might not mean necessarily sending our blood and treasure, but also basically allowing them the freedom to enact a just war. And basically, the Israel-Hamas war now at the beginning of this year, as of this Sunday, January 14th, is 100 days old. And it's interesting to see some of the differences between the reports of what's happening after 100 days from the left versus the rational center-right. And I say irrational left because you look, for example, the political report on the 100 days, the Israel-Hamas war, how it transformed the region. Yes, it has transformed the region, but ultimately... The AP starts with basically five takeaways from the first hundred days of a conflict that has upended the region, quote-unquote. Number one, Israel will not be the same. That's for sure. The October 7 attack blindsided Israel and shattered the nation's faith in its leaders. While the public, see, it's interesting, they cite the, their leaders first. Yes, there may have been intelligence failures. Yes, they're are questions to be asked by any democratic uh, populace. But is really the first line of that questioning its leaders or defending itself and fighting against radical Islamism that has long sought in its charter genocidal end of Israel, that has long united global entities of authoritarianism, autocracy, and evil against the West and especially against Israel and America. Families were killed in homes. Partygoers gunned down at the music festival and children, older, uh, elderly, abducted on motorcycles every day. Posters of the hostages who remain in Hamas captivity lined public streets and people wore t-shirts calling on leaders to bring them home. Round-the-clock coverage on Israeli news channels. Tales of heroism. Stories about hostages and their families. But nothing in this report from Politico, AP, nothing is about just war. I've talked to you about that previously, my last podcast, about just war and what determines what is and what is not just war. We weren't talking simply about Al-Qaeda operating out of a cave in Afghanistan in which we legitimately went to decimate them and make sure it didn't happen again out of another or different cave in Afghanistan. We never asked permission from the Afghanis. And ultimately, 20 years later, there was no liberation that was able to happen in that country. A lot of lots of lessons to be learned, not least of which this timing of the Hamas attack a year after Afghanistan, two years after Afghanistan was departed, horrifically weakly by President Biden with no strategy, with 
with a ISIS attack right as they were leaving the not the safer airports north Afghanistan runways north in Afghanistan but no out of the most populous area in Kabul with the entire world watching the signal to Islamists to the Taliban to ISIS was America was leaving between its tail between its legs and they tried to do anything to commit an attack which they did to punctuate to punctuate that America left with weakness and they waited us out and now they will take over and thus unleash unleash a time in which the Islamists can re- re-begin, start over their ascendancy for their caliphates wherever it might be and as weakly as it might be part of that ascendancy included Iran then feeling unleashed and it had a time by the way to complete the armamentarium to complete the tunnels and the the threatening of innocent lives not only of Israelis but of Palestinians also whether it was those in hospitals that they used to mask what they were or schools or whatever else in the in Gaza Hamas was a terror operation through and through as it's always been listed on our foreign terror organization list and that terror organization not only subjugated its direct enemies but its own its own populations that it lived within and i would tell you first and foremost on this political article on this discussion of 100 days into the war is what has changed and i will tell you that as as devastated as gaza is as devastated as it is please find for me the demonstrations against Hamas because what do they have to lose? What do they have to lose to speak up against Hamas? And there are those that are, and there are interviews that we're seeing in Arabic television about Palestinians who've had it, who are uh, sick and tired of the loss of life because Hamas is cowardly and is hiding in the homes in the schools and the hospitals of the of the weak in Gaza and pretending to be victims rather than rather than the warriors and soldiers that they claim to be but yet even the wars they started were started with the most horrific barbaric attacks on women and children not on combatants but women and children and now they continue with hostages spread throughout populated areas. And the message from regular media is about the challenges of Israeli leadership. It's about it's about how even when we talk about World War II, yes, we talk about the humanitarian suffering, but do we talk? You also hear always a narrative sandwich if you will the fact that it started with nazism spread and ended when nazism ended and in between that is the humanitarian loss that any everybody tried their best to minimize but it was a just war that had to happen as one of the worst chapters in humanity but brought out the best leadership that we had in our in our histories our collective histories of america and britain and and in the west and yet, 100 days into this longest conflict since 1948 in Israel, 
longest conflict, 100 days in, and yet there's no expectation that somehow the Palestinians should be ushering their Hamas to the streets to be handed out, should be protesting, protesting what Hamas did to them, ripping up anything that shows any remnants of Hamas's identity to disavow themselves of it to disavow themselves of a terror leadership and and show the world how embarrassed they are, how horrified they are by what their leadership, not just, a, not just, it is a terror organization, but not just that, it's a government, it's a soldier's military, jihadis, evil jihadis that are running the system there that the people there either need to revolt against or... They become accomplices. And that's the issue that we're not hearing about when we talk about what's happening 100 days into the war. Yes, there's a lot unrecognizable in the area of Gaza. But the Hamas need to be defeated once and for all. And until they're defeated, this is war. Now, the next learning point that political makes is that it's all connected. Oh, really? Yeah. Iran was funding Hamas for a long time and fueling it with weapons and missiles, etc., and came to fruition, and now all of a sudden they're wondering, oh, why are the Houthis acting up? Why are they embarking on a hundred ships? And why is Hezbollah also getting into the fray? Now they've avoided it, it's not erupted into a full-blown war in the north, but it's come perilously close. And they're attacking civilian cargo ships in the Red Sea. And Iranian-backed militias have attacked U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. And the U.S. is dispatching more forces. Now many understandably are worried about the drumbeats of war. And I'm going to get to a piece by Mark Wiseman in the JNS, Jewish News Service, that I think really highlights what is there to learn from all of this. Politico then says, Israel can't ignore the Palestinians. Well, no, but it can only pay attention to the Palestinians after Hamas is gone. The problem is trying to pay attention to the Palestinians with Hamas still there. This is their leadership. This is, now some studies say 63% of Palestinians support Hamas. I don't know what the numbers are, but it is significant. Because if it wasn't significant, you would have seen them thrown out like yesterday's garbage. Yesterday's human garbage by the Palestinian populace should throw out these militant terrorists known as Hamas. But yet, even in the West, even in the West, there's defense. And we're going to talk about that in a sec. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has come back into center stage, as political and AP say yes. And that's exactly what why Hamas is sacrificing its population, its so-called constituency. I say so-called because it is not. They are the devil incarnate. And the innocent Palestinians that reject Hamas are truly the victims of them as are 
the Jewish targets of their anti-Semitism and barbarism of the attacks of Hamas and all their allies like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and otherwise. Hamas wanted to revitalize the attention to the Palestinian issues. So, let's step back. The Washington Post, another leftist darling, on Christmas Day had a piece by Tim Craig and Clara Ants Morse called Young U.S. Muslims are Rising Up Against Israel in Unlikely Places. And it goes through and profiles 17-year-old Esma Zaytar and talks about her organization and how much she wanted to speak up about the Palestinian voices. And then also the anti-war rallies that have been growing. By the way, nothing in this piece about anti-Semitism. And then they connected that to waves of immigration and how they represent immigrants. And then basically unified the piece to talk about all these as being Muslims. About being Muslim, that the pro-Palestinian voice is the Muslim voice, and equated them. Even though Palestinian identity is includes Christians and Muslims. Palestinian identity, just ask Hanan Ashrawi and other socialist progressivist Palestinian leaders who even the even the the infamous Edward Said wrote his books on Orientalism and Palestinian history did so as a Christian, and yet this story about Palestinian voices in the West and America was about Yusuf Shahoud, an assistant professor at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, said that no Muslims are now coming of age and speaking out about Middle East politics in ways that prior generations of American Muslims were unable to. Shahoud, an Egyptian-American, said initial waves of Muslim immigrants were focused on securing jobs and settling in the U.S. Then they talk about Khalil Abdullah, second-generation Palestinian-American who grew up in Tennessee, pre-med pharmacy student at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, 23-year-old senior, said he never thought his college experience at Ole Miss would include becoming an anti-war activist. Then he talks about his experience in the MSA, one of the conveyor belts of radicals and militants that have been anti-American, anti-Western, pro-Islamist, pro-Muslim Brotherhood, and was one of the founding organizations in the late 60s, early 70s of the Muslim Brotherhood. I speak of this coming from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee back in the 80s. I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, in which I articulate my own history which lasted only a few months before I realized how anti-Semitic the MSA was and how much of the Muslim Brotherhood they were and how much in line they were. Videos all over the internet of pro-jihad speeches by leaders in the American Muslim Student Association organization and regional meetings in California, regional meetings in Chicago, Indiana, and elsewhere over the years, chronicled by Stephen Emerson, Daniel Pipes, and other experts on jihad in America. So this piece 
and the instructive thing for all of you is that the piece makes it seem that somehow there's a connection. Oh, there's obviously one, but a connection in plight and in voice between Muslims and Palestinians. While being Muslim is a faith, being Palestinian is a national ethnic identity. The faith, and this is what CARE tried to do. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, ladies and gentlemen, tried after their 1991 founding meeting with Nihad Awad, Omar Ahmed, and others talked about in the Civilizational Jihad discussion revealed in FBI documents and the Holy Land Foundation trial of 2008 and then 2009, revealed that that foundational meeting essentially then became the Islamic Association of Palestine and then in 96 formed the Council on American-Islamic Relations and they basically said that CARE could co-opt the rest of the Muslim population in order to divide the world much more easily and get a larger constituency from the Palestinian one because they were having a hard time coalescing simply around the Palestinian movement. That ultimately the larger movement of Muslims, whether you call it caliphism, you call it political Islam and Islamic states and jihad and their military, Whatever that is, it's a quarter of the world's population, but that movement had a large, much, much larger source of affinity for a quarter of the world's population as a potential constituency versus Palestinians, which were one ethnicity. And this so much, so much resonates now compared to where we were pre-2011. And why, why do I say 2011? Well, Remember, in 2011, the Arab Revolution started. The real revolutions against dictatorship in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, in Syria. And now we see more in Iran. But the Arab awakening, much of it failed. Some of it succeeded and then ratcheted back one step forward, three steps back, with Islamists taking over in Egypt and then needing a subsequent dictatorship military coup then in 2013 in Egypt. And ultimately that continued to go back and forth with revolution and war, civil war, civil strife, and especially in Syria where my family is and found themselves surrounded by one devil worse than the next, ISIS worse if not the same as Assad, the same as Iran, the same as Hezbollah, and the same as the Muslim Brotherhood radical groups, including Hamas, who ended up being in bed with Assad, as we see now, no surprise, as Iran was helping Hamas, even though this is part of the Sunni-Shia divide. Are you confused yet? You shouldn't be, because actually it's not that complicated. It's about political Islam, it's about red-green axis, and it's about anti-Westernism and anti-Semitism and anti-Israel ideas. But ultimately, the same thing now we see with these articles about the current war, the 100-day war, and it's going to go on until Hamas is completely decimated. And it has to, because the Nazis of the Palestinian movement, just like the Nazis of the Syrian movement, are the Assads, the Assad family, and the Ba'athist 
Party, the National Socialist Party of Baathism of Syria, no different, very similar to its cousins, the Baathists of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Well, the militant Islamists hatched from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt formed Hamas. And Hamas has exploited whatever plight exists of the Palestinians and given them directly their own plight, but blamed it on others, blamed it on the Jews, blamed it on Israel, blamed it on America. And then any ignorant lobby was there to accept that, oh, it must be part of that conspiracy theory. And, oh, they are, no matter what they do, it doesn't justify war. No matter what they do, no matter what GoPro videos we see, it's all conspiracies. That didn't really happen. No, the 1,400-plus Israelis that were massacred, non-combatants attacked in one day, somehow that was just an incident. That was just a horror, but not an act of war. There was no clear act of war in the recollection of most people I know around today for the last generation or two. And that act of war deserves a response for deterrence. And that deterrence, it's interesting how now the Palestinians, when we talk about the U.S. Muslim population that somehow is rising up against Israel and forgetting any accountability. This is the same thing. When I post 9-11, we in the American Islamic Forum for Democracy said terrorism is a symptom. Islamism is the root cause because it's a supremacist ideology. Hamas's symptom of terrorism still exists. It hasn't changed and it's worsened and become more extreme if possible. This charter basically called for genocide against the Jews and that extreme genocide that extreme genocide called for that eradication of a state eradication of a people and nobody is saying that the root cause is what it is which is political islam which is supremacy which is anti-semitism and hate no we're forgetting about that and yet people after people across the middle east were complaining that the palestinians were not voicing sympathy to the Syrians that were being attacked by chemical weapons, that were being attacked by ISIS and Assad, that the Palestinians were not voicing sympathy for the people of Egypt that were being attacked by Mubarak's thugs and then by the Muslim Brotherhood thugs. The Palestinian people were not voicing sympathy for the women's movements and the revolutions across, across Iran. Silence after silence after silence. And now somehow they're rising up with more radicalization than ever happening across the United States. Stand by, folks, because despite all of the revolutions of 2011 through 2020 and even on, as Syria still is brewing, the vitriol from the imams and the pulpits never got to where it is now with post-October 7. Listen to Omar Suleiman, the guy who gave the address and, and prayer from the U.S. Congress as an invitee by, by, by House Speaker of the House Pelosi a few years ago. Listen to him talk about 
Israel, and you'll never find him talking about truly genocidal regimes like Assad, Khomeini, Mubarak, and others that way. It's because of the rampant and rank anti-Semitism. It's because of the conspiracy theories and the ultimate unending victimization, victimology, and at the end punctuated and the fuse lit by wokeism. Wokeism has made them feel unhinged to where anti-Semitism is no longer seen. And if you look, which brings us full circle to exactly the double standard at places like Harvard. Jeff Flyer has a piece called The Harvard Double Standard in which he opens by saying the Hamas terror attacks of October 7 and the ensuing war between Israel and Hamas and Gaza caused disruptions on many university campuses that moved concerns about campus speech from a limited constituency to front page news, exposing it to new audiences. And the grilling of presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn by a congressional committee on the topic of campus anti-Semitism generated intense coverage and a near-unanimous conclusion by actors across the political spectrum that the presidents did a poor job of explaining campus turmoil, how anti-Semitic speech and conduct were handled under prevailing campus policies, and what they might have done differently to protect their students. And the resignations ensued. But lost was how to balance our freedoms with ensuring protection from harm is an appreciation of why universities exist in the first place. What are they for? What are these universities for? And now we're realizing they are bastions for taking in billions from China, from Qatar, from even Iran, as illegal as that might be, but third countries, from Turkey, from tons of autocratic countries that think they're getting nothing for their investment they're getting something that's for sure and these universities are supposed to be bastions of free speech of critical thinking of balanced debate dei programs now influence faculty recruitment and curricula previously the sole dominion of the faculty in contrast to the foregoing challenges of cancel culture and DEI assaults on academic freedom have also risen to public universities through government efforts to influence faculty hiring curricula and other faculty prerogatives. If we're going to meet these challenges, we need to understand the legal underpinnings of free speech on campus. As expressed in law and policy, the criteria for such distinctions are narrowly drawn to limit excessive suppression of speech of course, physical violence and interference that prevent others from carrying out their business are also out of bounds, even if motivated by strongly held ideas and related speech. And so how have universities managed this? They've done it poorly. They've no longer, they no longer, the institutional approach to identifying speech as acceptable versus threatening versus harassing or bullying has been influenced by ideology rather than neutral principles independent of the content of the speech. Isn't that true? And they're rife with double standards. So it's, it is 
an ideological push. It's not about neutrality and fairness. There is no more neutrality. There's only two sides. And as Bill Ackman and so many others now are trying to create new centers, new areas in which we have these debates, solutions are out there about promoting new policy and academic freedom that applies to all schools, about developing new policy to make it explicit the type of physical interference and overt violence that are unacceptable on campus. And institutional neutrality should be adopted, called the Calvin Principles adopted in 67 by the University of Chicago. And simply that policy would declare that the university leaders, presidents, provosts, deans, department chairs, and potentially others should not offer official statements on social and political issues of the day. Rather, the policy identifies that the core role of leadership is to enable these issues to be discussed, debated, and studied by students. DEI policies need to be reviewed about their harm and what they did. And it goes on. Congratulations to Jeff Flyer for his piece, December 23rd, written in Quillette. It's fantastic. Many others have been written and many other leaders are emerging that understand, that really want to protect the institution of free speech that is who we are in America. And that's been lost. But these, remember I talked to you, I started talking to you about the Hundred Days War and how it's being painted. Is there a bigotry of low expectations? Absolutely, I've talked to you about that many times. Muslim communities are now tied by the Washington Post and the New York Times and others on the left and still we were complaining about this 15 years ago then 10 years ago then 5 years ago and now people are starting to get it how they're tied to the grievance narrative of the de jure of the day Black Lives Matter tied in the Muslim movement and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib as being the quote unquote Muslims in the room while forget all the Muslims that were horrified by the violence across the country by the BLM movement and the anti-Semitism by the Nation of Islam devotees that were leading those movements. Now, forget that. Nobody was paying attention to that link. Or how about all the mosques that were radicalizing our community, people saying, oh, where did that come from? When in fact, sermon after sermon, and many of them were demonizing America, demonizing Jews, demonizing Israel, and saying that it was all part of a attempt to attack Muslims. And they then coined and used and perpetuated a term called Islamophobia. So if you criticize them, you hated Islam. You're a bigot, you hated Islam. You couldn't disagree. Islam is an idea. It's not a person, a race. It's an idea. And yet you couldn't criticize it. These are all the same issues, ladies and gentlemen. All of them. They are all the same. Wrapping ideas in non-debatable constructs of race and hate. Wrapping theocracy in those ideas. Wrapping huge collectivist movements 
against those of us that believe in liberty and freedom is really what all of this is about. Hamas attacks, gets media to do its bidding now again in the West, while the true folks that want to rid Palestinians of the greatest threat to its own survival, which is Hamas, are somehow the evil ones responding to a just war. This is where we are. If any of this resonated with you, ladies and gentlemen, then we're headed in the right direction. If any of it did. Sure, there's things to debate about emphasis and which, you know, um, specific acts of war. Nobody's defending all of it. When I was in the military or when I was commenting on what happened in the Iraq war, we saw things like Abu Ghraib and things that were, were, were shaming. We should have been ashamed of. But the vast, vast majority of American and men and women that served in uniform were moral soldiers, were committing and were the most moral fighting force on the planet. And it's the same thing with Israeli Defense Force. Sure, you're going to find examples on camera and elsewhere of acts that were not are not defensible by the Israeli government or their military, but the vast, vast majority of the IDF deserve our support and are conducting a war that is at the highest of standards possible for the cards that they were dealt by Hamas that has infiltrated a general population, densely, densely held population. So much more to discuss about this and more in the overlays between the left and the and the Islamists and, and where we're headed, but I'm going to call it a week right now. Thank all of you for being a part of this program. And when we come back next time, we'll continue the conversation. Might even look at uh, a piece by a good friend of mine, Mark Wiseman, who talked about the mother of squandered opportunities. So much more out there to talk about. And hope you're having a great year. It's always great to be with you. Find me on Twitter at Dr. D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, Dr. Zudi Jasser, and also Reform This Radio. And tell your friends about our podcast at Blaze TV. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.